Good morning, Dr. Dan Guerra. This is the Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. I'm coming to you from the inland Pacific Northwest of the United States of America on uh, a somewhat of a snowy day. Today is, of course, the 14th of April, 2022. We're still on our discussion of diabetes, and I'm finishing off what I want to really be the take-home message, which is that diabetes is a disease which is best described in one word as dyslipidemia. And I think I've convinced you of that. I know I've convinced a lot of people on it. I haven't heard from everyone who listens to this podcast, but I'm hoping that after one or two more lectures, we're able to really nail down how lipid metabolism is at the core of the prodromal stages of the disease associated with obesity, and then the progression into solid organs, particularly the adipose skeletal muscle, in conjunction with the liver and the kidney and the central nervous system, derive a highly morbid and often early mortality, chronic metabolic inflammatory disease, which is in a pandemic state in humans worldwide because obesity is in a pandemic state. So that's a very brief introduction, but you know, we've been talking about this for a very, very, very long time. Now, remember that the peroxisome proliferator activated receptors that we've been discussing here are, and these are transcription factors. They are ligand-activated transcription factors, by the way. I'm going to talk about those ligands in a moment. And, of course, because the transcription factors are going to be involved in chromatin retailering, so they regulate the expression of genes. What function do those genes have? Well, in the broad sense, they're involved in cellular differentiation. Of course, that means multiple metabolic processes, most significantly lipid and glucose metabolism. Now, in molecular terms, the PPARs represent a family of ligand-activated nuclear hormone receptors. Those are called NRs, of course, and they actually belong to the superfamily, which includes the steroid receptors. So examples of nuclear receptors include those for thyroid, thyroid hormone, retinoids, uh, 125-dihydroxyvitamin D3, steroid hormones uh, in the classical sense, and a variety of other ligands, including fatty acids, which we'll get into. After interaction with the specific ligands, nuclear receptors, are, which are localized outside of the nucleus initially, these are proteins that are synthesized and stored or are in uh, a state of so they can be activated by ligand to be translocated in the nucleus where they function as transcription factors. They play a role in chromatin retailering so that the DNA can be transcribed at a specific locus. So that means that in the DNA, they can change the structure and therefore the functionality of those cis-acting elements or response elements within the uh, DNA. Now, I want to bring back this discussion. And again, this is why you listen, hopefully, to authentic biochemistry. Why, why are we even talking about, you know, 
peroxisomes. Remember, peroxisomes are those organelles like mitochondria that can reproduce within the cell via fission and which can be taken out. The whole organelle can be um, dismantled and digested via an essentially an autophagic response. So the more the more mitochondria that are needed in one cell, you obtain a series of uh, growth factors and indeed transcription factors and enzymatic modifications, including, of course, signal transduction cascades, which leads to the production of more mitochondria via fission as bacteria will go through fission, cell division, right? Only here, it's the division of the mitochondria from one to make two, et cetera. The same exact thing happens with a peroxisome. Now, the peroxisome doesn't have nucleic acid, so it doesn't have a genome, but it coincides with mitochondrial replication in a cell where more redox control is required, where the mitochondria is involved in bioenergetics and, of course, in intermediary metabolism in a big way, Right, shuffling through hydrocarbon uh, such as fatty acid or or uh, carbon is being oxidized from uh, carbohydrate like glucose, or actually from transamination from amino acids coming in as alpha keto acid in the TCA cycle. Well, the peroxisome is there because there's a great deal of reactive oxygen generated, and the peroxisome removes reactive oxygen. Now, the peroxisome in terms of being uh, a very uh, high interest to a lipid biochemist, is involved in the peroxidation of membrane lipids, particularly very long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. And yes, other ones that have all kinds of notoriety, the omega-3 and the omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, right? Okay, remember those are positional uh, isomers where the double bonds are placed either six carbons or three carbons away from the methyl terminus. Okay, so let's get back now to this uh, generic um, architectonic discussion of what we mean by oxidative metabolism. Biological systems, superoxide is one of the most important reactive oxygen species. That's our ROS, right? So superoxide, remember, is O2 dot minus. It's a partially reduced form of molecular oxygen. Okay. Now, it's produced by the monovalent reduction of O2, molecular oxygen, by various enzymes, such as nicotinamide, adenine, dinucleotide, phosphate, hydride oxidase. That's called, those enzymes are called NOxes but also by xanthine oxidase, that's a nucleotide oxidase, and of course, cytochrome P450s and the mitochondrial electron transport chain. And finally, the endothelial nitric oxide synthase, which is ENOS. Now, because superoxide is the primary ROS, it's responsible for the formation of many other, even more reactive species. Hydrogen peroxide, uh, hydrogen peroxide is one, that's through dismutation. Then you have HO through the Fenton reaction of hydrogen peroxide with ferrous, that's Fe2 plus iron. And then you have the peroxy nitroso, such as ONOO minus, 
and that's through the reaction with nitric oxide. Okay, so those are just some of the players in the field. So superoxide is also involved in protein modifications through reactions with the tyrosyl radical, uh, for example, during ribonucleotide reductase activation. And also in far-flung things like the bioluminescence of fireflies through that single electron transfer reaction. However, its exact biochemical role in processes such as cell signaling, proliferation, uh, apoptosis, necrotosis, ferritosis, immune responses, and neurodegeneration, the regulation of all of that is still now being researched. So we know something about the regulation, but because these are highly reactive, uh, uh, reactive oxygen in general is turning over very rapidly. Um, there isn't a consensus of when you find superoxide building up in a cell, you can always state its function because I just gave you multiple potential uh, functions. Now, a major reason for the lack of a suitable in vitro superoxide generation system um, is because it's hard to be able to trap superoxide and to generate it. And if you can't put it in vitro, it sometimes is difficult to study at the biochemical level. Okay, so you get that. So what the way, the way it is described in um, chemistry and in some biochemistry journals is by using xanthine oxidase and potassium oxide. Both of those can be used to generate superoxide in vitro. Okay. So I'm not going to get into detail of that, but I wanted to let you know that this is how it's studied. So multiple forms of superoxide have been produced in uh, vitro and using xanthine oxidase, which will catalyze the oxidation of purines and pyrimidines and pteridines and aldehydes. And that, that means that you can generate all this reactive oxygen directly from organic compounds, which you'd normally find in the cell. Okay. And what is used then is to be able to, to measure and control superoxide and to, and to examine its generation and its utilization under physiological conditions. A redox-based system is usually in, employed, and this involves the quinone-quinone reductase system. Now, that's a system that uses quinone as the key molecule in the electron transfer to form superoxide. Now, you know this from primary biochemistry lecture, that quinone reduction will generate a reactive semiquinone or a hydroquinone, so SQHQ, if you recall. Hydroquinones can also result in the formation of a semiquinone, and that's because of the autooxidation that will occur in the presence of molecular oxygen. Subsequent transfer of an electron from a semiquinone 202 to, to, that is, to molecular oxygen will generate superoxide, as well as a molecule of free quinone. Okay? So you get the idea of where we're at in this process. And NADPH is involved in the enzyme called quinone reductase. Quinone reductase will take quinone and convert it to hydroquinone. Quinone at the same time in the present, uh, by uh, extracting an electron and a proton, will make the semiquinone, uh, by adding, excuse me, an electron and a proton, will make the semiquinone. Uh, 
And then one more electron, one more uh, proton will make the hydroquinone. So you go from quinone to semiquinone to hydroquinone. Now going in the back reaction, hydroquinone to semiquinone, you will take molecular oxygen to superoxide. That's an auto-oxidation reaction, obviously. And then the semiquinone to the quinone, now we're going back, right? Back into oxidizing the quinone. You will then reduce molecular oxygen. So you'll make another molecule of superoxide. Okay, and that's all under control. The, the redox is under control of uh, concentrations of NADPH. All right. Now, I'm not going to get into all the biology of biological oxidation. We talked about this several times. We talked about iron and copper play a major role. We talked about the enzymes that you normally um, inquire about when you're discussing redox. These are oxidases, which of course use oxygen as the electron acceptor. Dehydrogenases, which uh, are also involved in the production of superoxide. Hydroperoxidases, which use hydrogen peroxide as a substrate. And then the oxygenases, very important, the production of the oxygenated fatty acids, known as the uh, cosinoids and the cosinoids, right? And that will transfer uh, directly molecular oxygen into the substrate. The reactions I was just describing there include things like cyclooxygenase and lipoxygenases and P450 oxygenases, okay? All right, so just to give you an idea again about the biology of the system. Now, glutathione is another compound to keep in mind. Glutathione, remember, is a tripeptide. It's gamma glutamyl cysteine and glycine, where the cysteine has a free SH group. That's glutathione. So you can take hydrogen peroxide and convert that to water and at the same time make the disulfide, glutathione disulfide. So you go from the reduced SH to the disulfide, glutathione disulfide. Glutathione disulfide can then can be regenerated to reduce glutathione again with NADPH. These are all the scavenging reactions and they involve glutathione peroxidase and then the regeneration via glutathione reductase. Yeah. Now back to PPAR. Now that was a very brief encounter. Hopefully that was under five minutes of redox chemistry in the biological system. Very, very basic bare bones, because I want to make sure that you have that in mind. Why are we talking about this? Because we generate a lot of reactive oxygen whenever we have centers where there are partially reduced form of hydrocarbon, okay, which is all of bioenergetics. And, uh, and so because of that, it links to obesity and type 2 diabetes because where do we have a lot of hydrocarbon and a lot of uh, monocarboxylic acids that have long alkanes? Those are fatty acids. We have that when we have a lot of circulating free fatty acid bound to serum albumin or bound to lipoprotein matrices. Okay. And remember, I told you that uh, lipotoxicity of non-esterified free fatty acids is what is the foundation of type 2 diabetes. It's what corrupts insulin sensitivity and it does it, remember, by the, trans, by the prevention of the transport of the glute transporter to the plasma membrane, but also because it corrupts the P13 kinase pathway, protein kinase B pathway, and that whole signal transduction cascade that leads to the control of gene expression 
which can either tamp down reactive oxygen or amplify it, such as an, uh, an inflammatory response. This is where PPAR plays a role. And that's why we're here. Now, again, remind you, there's a super family of nuclear hormone receptors. There's a thyroid, steroid, D3, retinoid, and then there's the peroxin proliferative activated receptors, PPARs. Okay. Now, the three-dimensional structure of a PPAR consists of a DNA binding domain that's usually in the amino terminus of the polypeptide. And then there's a ligand binding domain that's called the LBD, and that's in the carboxy terminus of the polypeptide. And the, remember, PPAR is a transcription vector, so it's a protein <clears throat> acting in trans, right? Now, after interaction with agonists, and I'll tell you what those agonists are in a moment, naturally occurring, PPARs are translocated to the nucleus. And what they do, interestingly, like, well, like many proteins that are involved in DNA remodeling and retailering, they dimerize. In this case, PPARs heterodimerize with some other nuclear receptor. Often it is the retinoid X receptor or RXR. Now the RXR forms a heterodimer with lots of other receptors, for example, D3 and thyroid. And we talked about these in general biochem over the years. So the specific DNA regions of the target gene that is a response element that bind with PPARs are called, what? Well, guess what? PPREs, proxyproliferated hormone response elements, right? That's a cis element, it's a DNA. So the PPREs are found in the promoter regions or the enhancer regions of PPAR responsive genes, such as the fatty acid binding protein. Okay, now what does that protein do when it's expressed after transcription, translation? It binds fatty acid. What does that mean? It translocates fatty acids across membranes. Why is that necessary? Because fatty acids, if they are free, can corrupt membrane integrity, right? And so they need to be facilitated across membranes to prevent that toxicity. What kind of lip toxicity? Lipotoxicity, don't you know? If you have an excess of fatty acids and a diminished ability to transcribe, translate, fatty acid binding protein to get lipotoxicity. Now you see how PPAR plays a role, an ameliorative role in lipotoxicity associated with obesity and turning on type 2 diabetes. Okay. That's the way my brain works, right? I want you to get back into knowing why we're focusing on this all the time. So what are the types of PPARs? We got into this a little bit last lecture. There's a family of PPARs, and they fall into three categories. Alpha, then the beta-delta, which is another family, and then the gamma. Okay. So those three different isoforms are distributed differentially in different tissues and cells. They have different ligand specificities, and of course, they're going to have a different physiological function. Each of them either, though, will activate or suppress gene expression. And they'll do it in a biomolecular overlapping segregation mode. 
All the isoforms of PPAR do participate in lipid homeostasis and also glucose. Uh, I'm going to call it homeostatic regulation of bioenergetics. Okay. And it was believed that PPARs were only found in very specific tissues, particularly those that have a lot of peroxisomes, uh, don't you know? For example, a lot of the central nervous system. Think about that. But they're actually expressed in all metabolically active tissues. So what kind of organ systems? Well, I already told you. Adipose, muscle, but also include cardiovascular and, and all intestinal mucosal areas, brown adipose tissue, and yes, the CNS, okay? So PPARF-alpha, beta-oxidation, it turns on beta-oxidation genes. What are those? Those are beta-oxidation of fatty acids, like the acyl-CoA oxidase, acyl-CoA thiolase reaction. PPR-alpha also as the transcription factor for the expression of sterile 12-hydroxylase. So these are the CYP8B1 genes. I already told you that uh, some PPARs turn on fatty acid uh, binding. PPR-alpha tur uh, turns on the transcription and translate, and ultimately we get translation of fatty acid transport proteins through the FATPs. You also have the fatty acid translocase. These are the fat CD36s I've been talking a lot about. These are those receptors that used to be a component of the, yes, the orphan receptors on the plasma membrane that will pick up free fatty acid, right? Also, PPR-alpha will turn on lipoprotein lipase and the expression of two apolipoproteins, which are, of course, very famous, apolipoprotein A1 and A2. PPAR beta delta family will generally turn on at the transcriptional level genes involved in lipid uptake, metabolism, and efflux. Efflux, excuse me. And here you're going to get a repression of the efflux pathway by these PPAR beta delta. So that suppresses the efflux of fatty acids. Again, it's a protective role. We're trying to keep, keep fatty acids out of circulation. PPAR gamma, finally, uh, I just mentioned 10 minutes ago, but there, uh, PPAR gamma as a transcription factor will facilitate the expression of fatty acid binding protein like AP2, fatty acid transport protein like a fatty ATP, and fatty acid translocase, that same fat CD36. So overlapping. Again, PPR-alpha main tissue expression are going to be tissues expressing high um, turnover of fatty acids. That's mainly liver and skeletal muscle. Other tissue and cells would be cardiomyocytes, myocytes in general, um, renal cells, intestinal mucosa, and again, brown adipose. PPAR beta delta, you're going to find this expressed everywhere, but the highest concentration, if you were a biochemist and you want to study this transcription factor, you go to the GI tract, but you also see it in the esophagus and liver and uh, kidney and skeletal muscle. Gamma, primarily main expression is in the adipose. But again, secondarily, you see it in the retina, you see it in multiple immune cells. 
um, such as lymphocytes, monocytes, macrophages. And also there are trace amounts of PBR gamma also expressed in skeletal muscle and, of course, in smooth muscle. Now, the ligands, the ligands for PPAR, okay? There are many, many, many naturally occurring agonists for PPARs. And again, they are used either as pharmaceuticals for the treatment of either lipid disorders or glucose disorders. Lipid disorders, particularly obesity, just obesity as a pandemic, obesity as an issue in younger and younger people, but also in glucose homeostasis. So lipid glucose homeostasis, let me think. Oh, that's right. Diabetes, right? Type 2 diabetes, right? PPARs perform different activities, as we've been saying, and those different activities are associated with what ligands will activate them. So we have termed a whole class of pharmaceuticals called lipid sensors. And really what these are are PPAR agonists. They have very, uh, I won't say very precise, but they have um, dissimilative precision for which PPAR isoforms they will activate. And therefore, they're utilized for different uh, clinical outcomes, right? So the PPAR ligand binding cavity is very large. It's a, very, it's a protein with a particularly large binding uh, region in the amino acid sequence. In fact, it's larger, like three to four fold larger than other nuclear receptors. Now, this is interesting because people who study protein chemistry are wondering why would you need such a large surface area? And my argument would be, and I haven't seen this in the literature, maybe it's there somewhere in the lipid journals, but I would say it's because a lipid as a ligand is going to have a lot more fluid microdensity associated with it because of its ability to um, interact at the internal term and intramolecular level because of the shunning of water molecules. Think about how fatty acids are in a solution, right? And so because of that amorphous shape of the ligand, you're going to need a larger surface area for the polypeptide backbone to interact with that ligand, you see? And so indeed, the natural ligands for PPARs are fatty acids, particularly essential fatty acids. And so they act directly as agonists to control the transcription of genes involved in lipid and glucose homeostasis. Some of the major PPAR ligands are indeed docosahexanoic acid and icosapentaenoic acid. Those are two omega-3s. Remember docosahexanoic is 22 colon 6? And icosapentaenoic is 20 colon 5, both the omega 3, uh, both cisgeometry and both uh, in terms of the positional isomeric form as an omega 3. All right. So, not only those fatty acids, which are derived, of course, from uh, the essential fatty acid, alpha linolenic acid, but also products of the utilization of essential fatty acids. So leukotriene B4, for example, stimulates PPAR alpha. Uh, that comes from the lipoxinase pathway. Prostaglandin PGJ2, 
which comes from cyclooxygenase act activity. Remember, pumping molecular oxygen in that fatty acid. That activates PPAR gamma. Uh, and so you also get essential fatty acids and eicosanoids working commensurately at very high concentrations for PPAR activation. High is even 100 micromolar, uh, which means there's got to be a dietary component of this activation, don't you know, right? That's where you're going to get those kind of concentrations. Not after metabolism, but prior to metabolism, okay? Again, that's looking at from a nutritional perspective, which I try to throw in there because I know a lot of people who listen to authentic biochemistry are nutritional people, okay? So again, when you're thinking about PPAR alpha ligands, this is often uh, di uh, after a diagnosis of some kind of issue with dyslipidemia, such as hypertriglyceridemia. This is where you start to get uh, PPAR alpha ligands or when you want to do a PPAR gamma agonist for diabetes, these would be, again, the thiazolidine diones, right, that we talked about before. And we got into, we got into a little bit of, uh, we drifted into some very specific pharmaceuticals in that last lecture. Okay, so I'm going to stop here because I'm already out of time and I don't care that we're going through and taking a little bit more time for diabetes because I've got to cover this lipid section. So I'm going to continue on with PBAR and then I'm going to finish diabetes. I promise during this week, this is Holy Week in the uh, Christian faith. And I'm going to try to get it done. This is Holy Thursday. I'm going to try to get it done before Easter, which is this coming Sunday. And then we're going to move on to this new lecture series, which I know you're going to love. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, saying bye for now.